We are going through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Isaiah is been, has been dealing with a lot of the things we're dealing with, talking to the people about stuff that actually means something for us today. The Bible's relevant. I don't care what anybody says, the Bible is for today, even the book of Isaiah. And so that's, we have the privilege to study this tonight. Why don't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 31, which is where we left off last week, Isaiah chapter 31. And we continue with the woes. You know, we've been given some serious woes. Uh, in chapter 30, woe to the rebellious children of Israel. Chapter 29, woe to Ariel, which was another name for Jerusalem. Um, chapter 28, woe to Ephraim, which was the northern 10 tribes, you know. And just woe after woe, uh, Isaiah is just woeing it up. Um, and uh, here in our text tonight, we have this little tiny chapter, chapter 31, just nine verses. Uh, and it's woe to them that go down to Egypt, uh, which is um, really going to echo what Isaiah chapter 30 was saying. Um, and it's just a short little uh, kind of hard-hitting point, uh, sort of piggybacking on chapter 30, where the, remember it said, woe to the rebellious children of Israel that took the counsel of men rather than God and went down and aligned themselves with the Egyptians uh, and said, they'll save us, they'll protect us. Um, but it's almost like uh, Isaiah is going to look at it from a little more of a philosophical angle here in chapter 31, not just um, logistics. Remember, he went over the logistics. You ride on horses, they're going to ride on horses, and they're going to be faster than you. Uh, you think you're going to, you know, uh, shoot accurately, they're going to be more accurate than you are. And, you know, you think you're going to drive people away? No, you're going to run for your lives. One person's going to chase a thousand of you guys. And there was just kind of the math of what was happening there, that they made the, the wrong decision to align themselves with Egypt. Now, Egypt, of course, we've talked about this many times, is a type or a picture of the world, worldliness, godlessness, apart from God, and they, they aligned with the world. Man, I hope you're not doing that. I hope we're not doing that. And you can almost put a blank when you read the word Egypt in the Bible. You can fill in the blank. Woe unto them that go down into their financial portfolio and put their trust in their finances rather than the Lord. That's just worldly. Woe unto them that go down to their doctor instead of the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. I love doctors. Doctors are great. We use them. We uh, appreciate them but they're not God, they're men. And uh, we forget to go seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and, and then all these other things will be added unto us. We, we forget that doctors are not God. I think sometimes doctors forget they're not God sometimes, um, but they're not, they're just men. And, um, and um, so all that to say, fill in the blank. What is, your, what is your blank? The thing that is worldly, that's godless, that you turn to for security, for safety, for hope, for help, when really it's just not that great. Um, the Lord is great. The Lord is good. The Lord is able to protect us. And so he is going to take another look at this philosophically here in Isaiah 31. Let's read verse 1. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. 
Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is holpen shall fall down, and they all shall fail together. <laughs> pretty, pretty strong words, you know. Um, you're going down, both the Egyptian and you, in your alliance with the world, you know, and, and uh, we see that. Now, um, do you remember uh, this little verse here in um, Psalm 20, verse 7? It just echoes, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we remember the name of the Lord our God. You know, and that's, that makes you think, you know, what's the name of the Lord capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, the name, Jehovah righteousness, our righteousness. Jehovah, uh, you know, uh, Jireh, our provider. Uh, he's Jehovah's, uh, you know, Nisi, which is our, our banner. Like, you gotta remember the name of the Lord. We put our trust in Jehovah, who's our healer, Jehovah Rapha. Um, it's the Lord's name that speaks of his nature and his character. And so some people put their trust in horses, others in chariots, but as for us, we're supposed to put our trust in the name of the Lord. Who, who is the Lord? What does his nature tell us? What do we know about his character? Well, the Bible gives us everything we need to know. And we should be trusting in the Lord, not in Egypt. Uh, and, and so he says, verse three, now the Egyptians are men and not God. Um, the world can't help you. Uh, they might seem to be able to help or look pretty impressive. That's one of the mistakes they make here is, is um, Isaiah saying those horses, horses, they're just flesh, which is kind of an interesting thing that he says. Um, he says, now Egyptians are men, not of God. The horses are flesh, not spirit. Um, and, and the implication is there's a spiritual thing going on here. And when the world thinks they can solve a spiritual problem with a fleshly uh, you know, weapon, or tool, uh, they're in for a big shock because the spiritual stuff, that belongs to the Lord. And it's by his Holy Spirit. You know, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're spiritual to tearing down like spiritual, you know, fortresses and strongholds uh, of the enemy. Um, and we have weapons like the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. We've got weapons like prayer and the shield of faith. And, you know, we, we've just got uh, so much, really the Lord has given us to do battle against the, this world, um, not the flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. This is the kind of thing we're up against. And I think it's good for us to remember this, by the way, um, as, as it relates to what we're seeing going on in the world today. You know, one of the mistakes people make is they forget that it's just, it's a spiritual problem. Um, big mistake, Arab-Israeli conflict. You know, president after president has tried to leave their legacy by coming together with the, you know, the Palestinians and the Israelis. And there's always a picture of them on the front lawn of the White House, you know, shaking hands, only to bomb each other's, you know, backyards over and over again. And, and there's a reason why we fail to solve that problem because it's not a a weapon that we have in our arsenal that's gonna help solve the Arab-Israeli conflict. It's, it's not a, a political issue. It's not even an ethnic issue. Um, it's, it's a spiritual issue over in the Middle East. And uh, the more we 
ignore that, the more we don't acknowledge that, the more failure our presidents are gonna have. You know, Trump has come up with the deal of the century for the Arabs and the Israelis. Um, it is kind of laughable, if you ask me, because it's almost like Netanyahu and Trump came up with the deal of a century, um, and that's what they called it. And, um, and yet, uh, they also are well aware that the Palestinians will never agree to what they're suggesting or uh, proposing. And so I think it's kind of maybe, maybe it's Trump's way of saying, yeah, we're not gonna handle that one um, because uh, it's too tricky. And maybe, I don't know, maybe he understands there's more to it than that, but the Palestinians will never, the Arabs will never agree to the deal of a century that Trump and Netanyahu have put together. Um, now, um, do I hope they will agree to that? No because they're still dividing Jerusalem and um, you know, uh, causing there to be a Palestinian state within Israel, which biblically I can't get on board with that. Uh, my heart goes out to the Palestinian people, don't get me wrong, uh, but the solution uh, is not gonna be to divide Israel. Um, that's what the deal of a century suggests. Um, but they also know it's not gonna happen. Um, it's kind of comical if you ask me, but I digress. Um, all this to say, so much of what's going on in the world today is a spiritual issue. Um, you know, I wonder if this COVID virus, even though it's, you know, we can say, well, there's a virus. You can see it through a microscope. Um, yes, but man, it just seems to me like there's all kinds of other things at work behind this whole, you know, um, pandemic, as people call it a plandemic, you know, is, is, you know, it's almost like there's, people that just don't agree about anything and whether you should be under quarantine and, you know, can, can churches meet or not meet? And there, there just seems to be quite the spiritual battle here. And by the way, Christian church, we should be praying through this. Um, I think that prayer is so powerful and we diminish prayer and people are panicking about face masks when they should be praying uh, on their face before the Lord. Uh, and seeking the Lord for wisdom, for healing, for health, but also for um, just the evil and the, the um, agendas and the politics that are sort of linked to all this would just be sort of snuffed out. Um, unless it's the Lord's plan to sort of stir things up to get us to the, the last days, who knows? Um, it sure seems like it could be one way or the other where the Lord could be saying, yep, these are the last days, troublous times, perilous times where there's pestilence, uh, and disease that would be going rampant. This is all what the Lord said would happen in the last days. So it shouldn't be a shock to us. But we also wonder, is this just one of the birth pains that, um, that the Bible talks about before the coming of the Lord? And we have more to come perhaps. Um, who knows, but the Lord. And so we as Christians, we get on our knees and we pray and seek the Lord during these difficult times rather than turning to the Egyptian for the solution. Um, that's what I fear, fear a lot of people are doing is trying to turn to the world during these days. Uh, whether you're talking about the COVID crisis or racial issues in America or the economy or whatever the problem is, they're just men. Egyptians are men and they are not God. That's the idea here. And Isaiah is calling out the children of Israel. Um, he goes on in verse four, for thus hath the Lord spoken unto me, like as the lion, as the young lion roaring on his prey. When a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. 
Uh, what a picture. The lion of the tribe of Judah is going to come. And no matter what men say, men will be going, hey, what do you think you're doing? It's like a lion walking in and with its little gazelle in its mouth, getting ready to chomp it down. And like, what, are the men going to freak out the lion? No. Uh, the lion's not afraid of anyone. And uh, that's the idea. The Lord is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the Lord um, is not threatened by men. And so this is kind of talking about when he returns. And uh, humanity that wants to come against him will be like uh, shoe fly, shoe, you know, just get out of my way. The Lord's not intimidated by them. Um, Verse five, as birds flying, so will uh, the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem, defending also he will deliver it and passing over he will preserve it. Boy, this causes the imagination to sort of run wild because we're talking about the second coming of Christ and we're talking about, um, you know, how the, the lion, you know, is intimidating and not intimidated. But then there's this thing like a lion, but also like bird, a bird flying over Jerusalem. The Lord's gonna, you know, save it and, and preserve it. It says the Lord will defend Jerusalem and passing over like a bird, he will preserve. What does that mean? Man, I don't have the foggiest idea. You know, um, whether it's uh, spiritual, where the Lord's got some spiritual protection as he flies over Jerusalem, or is it the Lord's going to raise up, you know, his army with ability to fly uh, in the second coming? You know, there's going to be people coming through the clouds with them. That's us, the raptured church, seven years in heaven. When Christ returns, we return with them. With 10,000s of his saints, he returns, it says in Revelation chapter 19. And so maybe that's part of this flying over Jerusalem. Maybe we're going to be part of that. I don't know. Um, or it could be some really modernized F, you know, uh, 15s that are more modern than our, what is it, the F-35 now? And there's so many different amazing jets now. Maybe it's something even more protective. Iron Dome right now is protecting, you know, Israel in kind of a, over the sky in a, in a massively um, amazing way. All these missiles that they shoot in from you know, the Gaza Strip and uh, other places, uh, they never really hit their target because the Israelis have Iron Dome. Um, highly technologically um, incredible, really, uh, defense shield over Israel right now. So who knows? This, this causes the, the mind to sort of imagine, what is this going to be specifically? Don't know for sure. Kind of reminds me of uh, the way the Lord protected Jerusalem during... Um, uh, when the British came to take over Jerusalem back uh, in 1917, December 9th, actually, Lord Allenby of the British Army was going to blow a hole through the wall of Jerusalem. He had his tank poised there at the east gate that was sealed, that sealed up. Even to this day, it's sealed up. He was going to blow a hole through there and take Jerusalem from that, that uh, angle. Um, but somebody said, hey, Lord Allenby, you need to... Um, give one more shot at, at surrender for these, you know, Ottoman Turks, these Muslims that are there. In, they've been in Jerusalem now for a long, long time, but give them one chance to surrender. And uh, here's what you do. Get our biplanes. You know, this is World War I era planes. And uh, we'll fly over Jerusalem and we'll throw leaflets and, and written, you know, in, in Islamic tongue, we will, you know, you know, Arab tongue, we will write, you know, surrender. Uh, and it'll be signed uh, Lord Allenby. 
So he said, well, let's give it a shot. So they flew over Jerusalem and dropped all these leaflets on December 9th, 1917. And, um, and these little leaflets came falling from the sky and there were the Muslims in Jerusalem, as they saw this thing from the sky, little leaflets falling down. They didn't know what they were looking at. They'd never seen a plane before. And they, um, they saw this and kind of freaked out, but then they picked up these, the, what they considered to be leaflets from heaven. And it said, surrender, in their tongue, surrender. And then it said, Lord Alan B, which was Alan B's name, but they interpreted that as from Allah. It was like from Allah. Uh, so, so Allah from the sky was sending down leaflets to them saying, surrender to this guy, Lord Alan B. So they all lifted up their arms and said, we surrender. You know, you say, Brett, uh, why did you tell us that story? Well, this is the Lord protecting Jerusalem. And specifically, Ezekiel talks about how the East Gate will remain sealed shut until Jesus returns in his second coming. It's one of the more kind of incredible things when you go to Jerusalem. The East Gate or Gate Beautiful, the Golden Gate, it's also called there, that's on the you know, Eastern side of Jerusalem. That it's, it's, it's kind of a main entry and it should have been for hundreds of years. Gets you to the Temple Mount right away. But it's been sealed shut, and there's a reason why they sealed it uh, shut. Suleiman the Magnificent sealed it, sealed it shut because he heard that the Jewish Messiah was supposed to come through there. So he sealed it up with these huge stones, like that's going to keep the Messiah. But little did he know he was fulfilling Ezekiel's prophecy that the, the door of East Gate would be sealed until Jesus returns his second coming. And it's still sealed to this very day. That's, you'll see pictures. Look it up on Google. The East Gate in Jerusalem. It's a big, beautiful gate that's still sealed shut. Allenby was about to blow a hole in that gate, but as it turns out, God wasn't going to let him do that because that, the only person that's going to blow that gate is the, the Messiah when Jesus returns. And how did he protect Jerusalem from that? It was like the birds from the sky, the, the planes dropping leaflets. I, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen during the second coming of Christ, but that's an example of how the Lord works. He uses whatever means he wants to, to bring forth the fulfillment of his prophecies. And that's one of the uh, more, we'll, we'll get to that one in a few weeks when we get to Ezekiel's prophecy. We'll take a little closer look at that East Gate prophecy. It's pretty powerful, pretty cool. Well, the Lord's gonna preserve Jerusalem passing over like birds. So he's like a lion, he's like birds. Verse six, turn ye unto him from the, whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. Um, so they got to turn to him. Uh, they've, they've revolted against the Lord. Now it's time to turn to him. For verse seven, in that day, every man shall cast away his idols of silver, his idols of gold, which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. Then, when? When the idols are destroyed, when they turn back to the Lord. Then shall the Assyrian fall by the sword or with the sword, not of a mighty man, and the sword, not of a mean man, shall devour him but he shall flee from the sword and his young men shall be discomfited and he shall pass over to his stronghold for fear and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign, saith the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and his furnace in Jerusalem. Now don't forget there was a local and near prophecy fulfilled by the Assyrians. And remember the 185,000 soldiers slain without the sword. They just woke up dead. Remember that? Uh, the Jews woke up and they looked over and they were all dead. Uh, that's quite a story that we, that we read about. But um, this is what's going to also happen uh, in the second coming of Christ. 
So it's the dual fulfillment of prophecy that Isaiah, much of his book, uh, deals with. We've covered that in previous studies. Now, chapter 32, what is verse 1? It, it gives us the hint of what this chapter is about. Let's see if you can figure it out. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. What do you suppose chapter 32 is about? Well, if you said the millennial kingdom, you're right, because the king of kings, the Lord of lords, will reign in Jerusalem in righteousness, and princes shall judge, and and those that will be ruling and reigning with him, guess what? That's us, according to Scripture. We get to have our resurrected bodies, we'll be raptured, be with the Lord, we come back with them, rule and reign with them. He's the one who's the king of kings, and he's going to reign from Jerusalem. So this, this is that uh, story or picture of Jesus in the millennial kingdom, chapter 32. So it says, verse 2, a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. So there's confusion. Your NIV puts the word man as plural, I believe, or some of your newer translations. Um, it's a problem because um, some of the the times with this word is used in the Hebrew Bible, in the original Hebrew text, the word's translated a man, singular. Um, sometimes it's men, plural. Which one is it? Well, a, a few hundred times it's translated as men, plural, but more than a thousand times it's translated as man, singular. What's your point, Brett? The point is, um, nobody knows for sure, but if this is man, singular, which it likely is, like the King James puts it here, this could be talking about Jesus Christ, the, the man who's going to come and be the man God, you know, God with us, Emmanuel. And uh, he's also going to come and rule and reign. And, and the reason there's image here that he's going to be a covering during the tempest. A man will be a covering. Jesus is the only covering that I want to be under. Um, you know, Jesus talked about, oh, I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks and puts them in the shadow of her wings. That's, that's the, the image here that's being talked about during this time. And this river of water, Jesus talked about that, being a, a dry place as a great rock in a weary land. This is all imagery that causes us to think of the rock, Jesus, the water of life, the well of springing water, you know, of living water. This is Jesus, I believe. So those of you that have the word men in plural there, I think that might be doing a disservice to the text because we're talking about the river of life, the rock, which we can stand on, and the one who puts us in the shadow of his wing. It's all Jesus in the millennial kingdom. Verse 3, And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, and the ears of them that hear shall hearken. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers shall be ready to speak plainly. This is part of the kingdom. Um, You know what I'm looking forward to in the kingdom is a new body. And I'm gonna be able to do better and be better. You know, the older you get, have you noticed that, you know, I remember remember about a decade ago when I was studying my Bible and I thought, man, I must be tired. I can't see my little notes that I write here in the side of my Bible. I was like, man, must be tired. Nope, it was old age as it turns out. (laughs) At 42, uh, suddenly my eyesight, the reading, the whole reading glasses thing. What a pain, you know, getting older. And and, uh, me and my wife, Deb, you know, we crack ourselves up because we'll be in the house and She'll say something, I'm like, what? And then I'll answer and she'll say, what? And we just don't hear like we used to. And it's funny, um, as it turns out, she's lost all that frequency of the low end 
of, uh, which is kind of my voice, and I've lost all that frequency of the high end, which is kind of her voice. And so we just kind of sit around and, and say, huh, what? Uh, you, you, know, you, you know you're getting older uh, when you feel these things. You know, your, your knees buckle, but your belt won't. <laughs> that's, that's a sign you're getting older. You sink your teeth into a nice steak, um, and then they just stay there. That's when you know <laughs> you're getting older. Um, but, uh, but there's good news uh, for you uh, and for us is we get new bodies and we get to be able to uh, hear again. It says here, your eyes of them shall not be dim. The ears will hear and hearken. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge and the tongue. You know, people that can't speak, they're gonna speak eloquently. That's what it says when they say ready to speak plainly. You'll see in your margin, it says he'll be able to speak eloquently. Have you ever wished that you could speak eloquently? Uh, speaking is one of the things that is one of the greatest fears of people is uh, speaking in front of a, a crowd, as it turns out. And uh, in the kingdom, nobody's going to be afraid to talk. Now, we move on then to what's going to happen to the vile person. It says in verse 5, the vile person shall be no more called liberal, nor the churl uh, said to be bountiful. <laughs> now, some of you conservatives are like, oh, this is a life verse right here. Did you see that? The vile person shall no more be called liberal. There's going to be no more liberals. No, that's not what it's saying. But it is interesting. <laughs> In fact, as we read this, uh, I'll let it stand by itself. I'm not going to try to dive into this too hard. But um, there's a few words here that you should know about. The word liberal um, is, is known uh, by the Hebrew word that, that means noble um, or big-hearted or a person that's kind of giving. So the vile person shall no be called liberal, nor the churl. Now the word churl is an old word we don't use that often, uh, but if you look it up in the Webster's Dictionary, it's a impolite, mean-spirited person. That's a, that's a good word, churl. That, guy, that guy's a churl. Um, and uh, the word churl means scoundrel or uh, mean-spirited, uh, impolite person. Um, so these, these people that are mean are not going to be known as liberal. Now, I have to say, and this is where I dangerously start to move in some political landmine area here, but I have noticed that politically there is a reversal of um, what people think are the nice people versus who are really the nice people. Um, it's a little bit like your parents. You know, remember when your parents made you do stuff and you thought they were so mean? But then you realized actually they were teaching you character and work ethic and, you know, you know taking out the trash, as, as it turns out, was probably a good thing for you as a kid to be able to say, well, I've, I learned how to do chores and, and, uh, and you know, and, and, but I've noticed that, you know, you go over to grandma and grandpa's house, they're not going to make the kids do chores. They want to be the fun people. Um, but that, that's not going to necessarily create the great character. I've seen this get uglier in marriage when a divorce happens and the, the mom is there trying to teach the kids character and doing their chores and doing their homework and all this. And then the dad, the deadbeat dad gets to see the kids once a month or something and he takes them to Disneyland and gives them all the nice gifts and all that stuff. And, uh, and somehow he's sort of, look, he's looked at as the, the big hearted noble, but he's actually the churl and she's actually the faithful one. But the kids, they don't necessarily know that. Now, I've got good news for those of you that are in that situation. Um, the kids will figure it out someday. 
<laughs> they will. They'll, they'll figure it out. They'll realize, yeah, dad was not so cool and mom taught us the good stuff. Um, and, and people that do this game, it's, the, the Bible says this isn't going to happen during the millennial kingdom. Um, I see this even with the racism issue. I think that sometimes some people that think are perceived as having the answer to racism. Um, for example, Black Lives Matter. I've talked about this a lot because it's at the forefront of our political discussions right now. But I don't know that they have the best interest for black lives. Well, Brett, who are you to say this? You're a white guy that doesn't know anything. All I know is this. Um, uh, I see an agenda that is so godless uh, in Black Lives Matter organization. Um, and it's so contrary to what the Bible says. And I'm not sure I see evidence that they really care that much about black lives, honestly. And, um, you know, there's so much that we could talk about, about black lives. Chicago and the shootings and the death, you know, um, black on black crime is such a horrible thing. Like something needs to be done about all those that would, would be in trouble, not just the, the, the ones that have a political agenda attached to it. It's interesting because um, I got just have to say, uh, if you ask people, you know, which party was involved um, with the uh, abolitionist movement, you know, and people don't, don't want to admit it, but it was the Republicans. And isn't it funny that the Republicans are perceived as the ones that are, are being, they're being sort of, you know, pointed out as racist. Now you're saying, Brett, you're showing your cards too much on their politics. I am just speaking the truth. Here, the Bible talks about how in the millennial kingdom, this nonsense, you know, uh, they, they think that somehow that the, um, the, uh, the, the deep south and the Confederate flag was kind of a Republican thing. No, it was a Democrat thing. Um, the KKK was a Democrat thing. I'm just saying that's your history. Uh, and, and they've tried to make it sort of erase. They want to erase history and make it look like one group's the bad one and one group's the good. I just think the Lord's going to sort all this stuff out in the millennial kingdom. Uh, there'll be no more confusion about this. That's what this is saying. And I look forward to that day because, man, you, it's hard to know what to think <clears throat> about any group or, you know, person anymore because of the, the way the, the, the evil side will sort of misconstrue the other side. And it happens, I think, on all spectrums of the political, um, you know, uh, uh, line. So be careful on how you think about this. But I've got good news for you. Those of you that are frustrated with seeing the, the you know, rewriting of history and the calling good evil and evil good and all this stuff, the Lord's going to turn all this around. The vile person will no more be called liberal and the churl to be said to be bountiful, even though he's not really bountiful. Verse six, it goes on, for the vile person will speak villainy and his heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy. Do we see hypocrisy today in politics? Good night. Yes, we do. And to utter error against the Lord to make empty the soul of the hungry and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. The instruments also of the churl. Remember the churl is the guy that's mean-spirited, impolite. The instruments also of the churl are evil. He deviseth wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks right. Did you hear what it says? This guy will look like he's bountiful and he's helping the needy, but he actually doesn't care about the needy. He just um, he is using wicked devices. It says he devises wicked devices to actually destroy the poor. 
See, I'm concerned that there are groups out there that claim to be caring about the poor, but I think they're only adding fuel to the fire of poverty. And they're, they're wanting to keep some of the marginalized people down. Um, I love how Jesus is the one who lifts people up. I'm not saying it's the Republican Party or the Democrats or the liberals. or Jesus is the one who truly cares about the poor person. Jesus is the one who cares about the marginalized person. And when Christ comes and rules and reigns, these churlish, foolish, vile people that are hypocrites, the Lord's going to deal with them. It's coming. But, verse 8, the liberal devises liberal things, and by liberal things he shall stand. Um, so, the Lord's going to write all of this stuff that we're seeing happen on the news every night, right now. The Lord's going to fix that when he returns. I love that. Now, by the way, um, this, this whole thing is about the kingdom, when Christ comes and rules and reigns, and the second coming. The second coming is where this is really going to kick into gear. Um, is the second coming a big deal? And why does the church not really talk much about the second coming anymore? The answer, I have no idea. Because the Bible talks a lot about the second coming of Christ. One scholar estimated that in the Bible, there's 1,845 references to the second coming of Christ. Um, 1,845 references in the Bible to the second coming of Christ, just in the Old Testament. uh, where basically 17 books of the Old Testament give it prominence, the second coming. Like, like Isaiah, I would say, is a, a book that gives prominence to the second coming. In the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second advent or the second coming of Christ. An amazing one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament speaks of the second coming. One out of every 30 verses. 23 of 27 New Testament books refer to the great event of the second coming of Christ. For every prophecy in the Bible concerning Christ's first coming, born in Bethlehem, dying on the cross, resurrecting into heaven, um, for every one prophecy concerning Christ's first event, there are eight in the Bible that teaches about his second coming. Eight to one. Um, is, Is the second coming of Christ important? You better believe it. And uh, it shouldn't be diminished. And it's so sad because here we are seeing a whole chapter, verse chapter 32, um, about the second coming of Christ. But not a lot of churches are going to cover Isaiah chapter 32 because they don't want to talk about the churlish guy and the, and the liberal person and all that. It's too controversial to talk about this stuff. But, well, it's going to get worse. Check it out. It says right here um, in verse 9, it says, Rise up, ye women that are at ease, or that is... Women just kind of complacent. Hear my voice, you careless daughters. Give ear unto my speech. Many days and years shall ye be troubled. Now this is, again, talking about before the coming of Christ and before uh, the Assyrians come and and they're going to be delivered from the Assyrians. So remember the dual fulfillment of prophecy. He's talking about an attitude of the people, specifically the women. They're kind of carefree, but they're going to be in trouble um, and they're going to eventually give ear. Uh, Many days, verse 10... And years shall you be troubled, you careless women. Not that they're careless, that is, they, they care less about stuff because they're totally careless. Uh, they, they don't have worries, is the idea. Um, for the vintage shall fail and the gathering shall not come. In other words, the crops are not going to produce wine of the vineyard and uh, they're not going to come. Nobody's going to harvest. Verse 11, tremble, ye women that are at ease. 
Be troubled, ye careless ones. Strip you and make you bare and gird sackcloth upon your loins. They shall lament for the, the teats, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. Upon the land of my people shall come thorns and briars, yea, upon the houses of joy in the joyous city, because the palaces shall be forsaken, the multitude of the city shall be left, the forts and towers shall be for dens forever, a joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and a fruitful field be counted for a forest." What's this all about? Brent, did you say what I thought you said there in verse 12? Yep. The idea is um, there's going to be famine and starvation. And there won't be any, um, people will be troubled because they were careless, but now they need to take off their fancy clothes and put on, you know, strip down and put on sackcloth and ashes and mourn the days when they used to nurse their children uh, because they could. But because of famine and starvation, they won't even be able to do that. Now, there's even other passages that would talk about these same women who would eventually eat their babies. Like that's how horrifying some of the besieging of Jerusalem would happen. And this would ultimately come to fruition um, by, you know, the Babylonians uh, when they besieged Jerusalem in 586. And it was a horrific scene where the Jews were in real trouble. This is speaking prophetically of that time. But I also believe Isaiah is talking about the time before, just before, not only before the deliverance from the Babylonians and the Syrians, but also before the deliverance comes, the second coming of Christ. Jerusalem is going to be a tough place to be before um, Christ's second coming. Right now, it's a pretty easy place to be. Um, but I think it's going to get bad, really bad, during the tribulation. Those seven years called the tribulation, Jerusalem's going to become a total mess. And it's going to be, you know, Antichrist is going to come and ruin it and hurt it. And that's the sad part of the story. The good part is Christ is going to come. Right when Jerusalem's hanging by a thread, just like in the story of the Babylonian, 586 BC, they're, they're going to have the same thing, only worse, during the tribulation period. And Christ will be the one to save them. Well, um, so he says, um, he says, my palaces will be forsaken you know, but notice verse 15, until, 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 verse 15, the spirit be poured upon us from on high and the wilderness be fruitful field and the fruitful field be counted for for us. There's gonna be a change. And what's the change? Notice until the spirit be poured upon us from high. In chapter two, we, we see two main things. We see the, um, you know, the ministry of the son of God, verse one, the king that shall reign in righteousness, but the second part, we see the ministry of the Spirit of God, where he's going to pour out his Spirit um, from on high. Now, this echoes to, uh, you know, Joel, uh, the prophecy of Joel, and also spoken of by Peter. Let me read to you from Peter, uh, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 15. It says, For these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing that it's the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. That's Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons shall, and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men will dream dreams. And on my servant and on my handmaids will I pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now, this is interesting, by the way. So this is the Lord pouring out a spirit. Now, 
I believe there's three places in history where particularly the Lord pours out his spirit. One is the delivering of the Jews from the Assyrian and this local aspect of what Isaiah is talking about, the near prophecy. But I also believe he's poured out his spirit miraculously on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, upon the church for the church age. But the Lord's gonna also, a third pouring out of his spirit is seen in the millennial kingdom. The prophet Joel's talking about that when Christ comes and he's gonna pour out his spirit upon all men in a radical way. And uh, so we're seeing some of that, uh, I think, nearing uh, as the day of the Lord gets closer. So are you with me? The pouring out of the Spirit, I think that's what Isaiah's talking about. It's what Peter was talking about in Acts chapter two. It's what Joel was talking about, of course, there um, in, um, in Joel chapter two. Um, one thing I might just comment on, because it says in those days, the young men will you know, see visions and the old men will dream dreams. There's a big thing on Facebook where a pastor saw some dreams. And uh, some people are getting all, you know, it's gone viral the last three days. And some of you might be like, well, Brad, what do we think about that? It's interesting, with dreams, you have to be real careful. Um, do I believe that in the last days, old men will dream dreams? The Bible says that's gonna happen. Young men will see visions. So we can know that it's gonna happen. But the thing about dreams and visions, fortunately, you and I are not asked to make doctrine out of that. In other words, we don't, uh, we don't camp out on it and say, okay, we gotta change everything we're doing or our attitude about anything, um, because that's not the purpose of a dream that's from the Spirit of God pouring out His Spirit where old men will you know, dream dreams. So the, the question is, what is it meant to do? Well, the, the Spirit of God pouring out His Spirit and dreams and visions are to drive us to Christ and make us trust in Christ. And if the dream is making you freak out, or if the dream is making you fearful, or if the dream is making you collect guns and get your bunker and your Cheerios and your MREs, um, that's not really necessarily the work of the Spirit. So this pastor that came out, you know, um, one thing I would just slowly caution us on this is uh, he says in November, he saw a dream where in November things are gonna go absolutely berserk. Um, and, uh, and so people on social media, oh, should we be afraid? Um, the answer is no. We're not being given over to a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. Well, should we gather our guns and get our bunkers? No, nowhere in the Bible does it say that should be the response of the Christian church. Um, you know, um, and the, you know, I, all the, you know, I'm, I'm pro second amendment. I, I think it's great, but I think it's kind of goofy when, when the church acts like that's part of our job is to call everybody up to arms and stuff. That's not really the way the church rolls. Um, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. And so this pastor was kind of saying, you better get your ammo, stock up on your ammo, stock up on your guns. I'm not really sure that that, that starts to smell a little bit fishy to me, uh, that it's not really in line with what scriptures say. If he was saying things are gonna get really bad in November and I had a dream, then what do you do with that? You tuck it away and say, well, we'll see. We'll see if it was a dream or we'll see if it was the pizza that he had the night before. It just came a little, you know, a little active night uh, dreams. Uh, uh, but no matter what dream, even if it's from the Lord, you have to be careful because it shouldn't change who you are or what you do. It's, they're usually a word of comfort or maybe of caution or warning. But um, if they're calling us to arms and calling us to battle and stuff, we don't really see that as much in the New Testament. I, I'm, I know I'm stirring up a, a bee's nest there, but, and I'm not a pacifist, don't get me wrong. But I also know that if things get that bad, like this guy's saying, um, 
you know, we as Christians, uh, we should be called to a lot of things uh, long before uh, anything like what he's calling us to do. So I'm, I'm suspicious. I'm just going to put it that way of this, uh, of this dream and this pastor, just suspicious. I'm going to watch it very cautiously and not go, oh man, this guy saw a vision or a dream from the Lord. Uh, I think the church needs to be real careful and discerning. Um, and what do you do? You hold up what he's saying to the rest of scripture and see if it fits in his line. And I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical, just to be honest with you. Well, all that to say, uh, that's a freebie for you, <laughs> um, but something to think about. Well, quickly back to um, our text here, verse 15 of 32. You know, uh, uh, until the Spirit be poured upon us from high. That's the pouring out of the Lord's Spirit talked about in Acts 2, Joel 2, and Isaiah 32. Verse 16, then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field and the work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Boy, doesn't that sound good right about now? A little quietness and peace. You know, the Bible talks about in the last days, people cry out, peace, peace, but there will be no peace. But when Christ comes, there's gonna be righteousness and peace and it's gonna affect the righteousness and quiet, quietness. And verse 18, my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation and in sure dwellings and in quiet resting places when it shall hail coming down on the forest and the city shall be uh, low in a low place. Blessed are ye that sow beside all waters that send forth thither the feet of the ox and the ass. So, um, you know, when Christ comes, it's gonna be better. There's going to be water flowing. The ox and the ass will be back to plowing, farming, fruitfulness, peace, and blessing. Chapter 33, we have another woe. Let's see who it goes to. Verse 1. Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled. And when thou shalt make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with thee. Brett, what is wrong with Isaiah? Is he short-circuiting here? Um, he's talking about dealing treacherously, treacherously, treacherously. Why is he saying it over and again? It's, it's, whenever you see something like this, you can also kind of realize, well, this is another language. And Isaiah speaks in flowery language in his Hebrew tongue. So maybe we're missing something. And here we are missing something. If you go to the original tongue, the idea of dealing treacherously, there's an implication, maybe even more of a, a denotation of, um, of breaking of a covenant. And this is important because we're talking about a specific covenant and we're talking about the one that if you recall, and it's been a while since we were in 1 Kings, but in first, pardon me, 2 Kings chapter 18, uh, do you remember in 2 Kings chapter 18 that Hezekiah, who was the king during this time, when Isaiah's prophesying, um, made a deal with you know, the Assyrians to not mess with them. Do you remember how he paid them off? He paid them off with the gold from the temple. Um, let me read to you from 2 Kings uh, there in chapter 18, verse 13. It says, let's listen to the story. Now in the 14th year, King Hezekiah did Sanharib, the king of Assyria, come up against the fenced cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, 
I have offended. Return from me that which thou puttest on me, and I will bear. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At the time, at that time, did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. What did, what did he do? He got all the gold from this, the temple and from his palace, that all the gold that Israel could muster up and cut it off the doors of the temple that was put there during the time of Solomon and you know, hauled off this gold and gave it to Sanharib saying, land for peace, land for peace, you know, or gold for peace never works in the Middle East, by the way, still to this day. Uh, the idea of paying someone off or giving them land so that they can have peace never works, not ever throughout all of history. It's amazing as somewhat of a you know, tourist his- history buff, I've noticed that land for peace has never worked or, or money for peace. Um, it's just the bully that keeps wanting more money. And, you know, that's, that's what Hezekiah is doing. He, so he makes a deal with Sanharib to let them stay in Judah and their cities, and, and uh, they, he pays them off. But the problem is, um, what did Sanharib do? He dealt treacherously with Hezekiah. And that word in the Hebrew is broke the covenant and the promise of the land for peace deal that he made in 2 Kings 18. Are you guys with me there? So that's the implication of the beginning. I know that's a little hard to get there in the English text, but that's, that's what he's talking about. The Assyrian that ripped off the Jew uh, and you know, paid off with gold, but then he comes back eventually and wipes him out anyway, or wants to wipe him out. So verse two, O Lord, verse, uh, chapter 33, verse two, O Lord, be gracious unto us. We have waited for thee, be, uh, be thou their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people fled. At the lifting up of thyself, the nations were scattered, and your spoils shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar, and the running to and fro of locusts shall be run upon them. The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath uh, filled um, Zion, old name for Jerusalem, with judgment and righteousness and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Now remember, this is a dual fulfillment of prophecy, the Assyrian and Jesus' second coming. So when you read the story of, you know, the 185,000 soldiers being wiped out by an angel of the Lord, that's a foreshadow of what's gonna happen when Christ returns and makes Jerusalem uh, safe again. And uh, we'll, we'll sort of, uh, save the, the Jew, the remnant of the Jew, as he did in the time of the Assyrians. Verse seven, behold, their valiant ones shall cry without. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The wayfaring man ceaseth. He that uh, hath broken the covenant, he hath despised the cities. He regarded no man. That's the Assyrian. The earth mourneth and languisheth. Lebanon is ashamed. And hewn down, Sharon is like a wilderness. Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. Now uh, I, will I rise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as a fire shall devour you. And the people shall be as the burnings of lime 
as the thorns cut up, they shall be burned in the fire. Hear ye that are far off what I have done, and you that are near acknowledge my might. Um, man, this is the picture that Isaiah is painting here is kind of profound. The list in verse nine, Lebanon, Sharon, Bashan and Carmel. Those are the most beautiful places you could name. It'd be like you and me saying Multnomah Falls and Crater Lake um, and Yosemite. Uh, um, those places are all just heaps of ruin. You'd say, wow, that, that's, that's kind of a bummer. But that's what's happening here. Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon, Sharon. Those are the beautiful places that are gonna be kind of wiped out. And the Lord is gonna come and, uh, and wipe out the Assyrian who's messed up everything. Now, um, they'll be burned with fire. This is again talking about both the near and the, the far prophecy when Christ returns. It's interesting these places have become ugly today. Lebanon is ugly, which is unfortunate. It used to be really beautiful. But I believe when Christ returns, he's gonna rule and reign from Jerusalem and Lebanon will be brought back, I believe, because of passages like this and others. But notice in verse 13, hear ye that are far off what I have done and ye that are near. Who are those that are far off? Those are the non-Jewish people, the Assyrians, um, you know, the Babylonians, all the, not the Gentile nations. Those are the people that are far off. And then he says, but also those of you that are near, the Jews. Um, acknowledge my might. Just acknowledge that I'm the one in charge. That's what he's asking. Um, do you remember when other language like that was used about those that are near and those that are far? Ephesians chapter two, remember when Paul said there were some that were far, Gentiles, and there's some that are near, the Jews, but he's made one new man out of those two people, the church. Uh, read Ephesians chapter two, I love that. Well, verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? So that's the question. Um, when Christ comes and does all his, you know, who's gonna be able to handle this? Well, then he gives the answer in verse 15 and onward. He that walketh righteously, that's the person who's gonna survive this when Christ comes and wipes out the Assyrian, wipes out the Antichrist. Um, he, he, the person who's righteous, he that walketh, verse 15, righteously and speaketh uprightly. He that despises the gain of oppressions that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and the shuttereth his eyes from seeing evil. He shall dwell on high, his place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him, his water shall be sure. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty, whose eyes the righteous people. And that's us, by the way. We're counted righteous, not because of practically righteousness, but positional in Christ righteousness. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. Thine heart shall meditate uh, terror. Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counteth the towers? Thou shalt not see a fierce people, a people of, fear, uh, of deeper speech than thou canst perceive, of stammering tongue that thou canst not understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities, Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not of one of the stakes thereof shall be ever removed. Neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. But there the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams, wherein shall go no galley with oars, 
neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Whew. Man, verse 21 and 22, it's when Christ comes. And remember we sang from Psalm 46, there is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. That's when Christ comes and, and the river is gonna flow. It's talked about in Zechariah 14, jot this down in your notes. In Zechariah 14, verse, um, verse four, it says, and Jesus, his feet shall stand on that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem in the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, split, and toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a great valley, and the, and the half of the mountain shall remove from the toward the north, the other to the south, and you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, which is Petra, by the way. Yea, ye shall flee like ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day uh, the Lord shall, shall be known as the Lord, not day or night, but it shall come to pass that the evening time shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living water shall go from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. That'd be the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. Um, in the summer and the winter, it shall be, and the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. So this is that river that's gonna come from Jerusalem someday. There's gonna be a huge earthquake, split Mount of Olives, uh, you know, from north to south and water's gonna flow. Fresh water to the Dead Sea, bringing life to the Dead Sea, fresh water down to the, the Mediterranean Sea, and it's gonna be a whole different deal. This is all talked about here in Isaiah. Uh, we're reading about this river, um, and also in uh, Zechariah, and also the Psalms, for the Lord's gonna judge and he's gonna take over. Well, verse 23, um, thy tacklings are loosed, um, they could not well strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then is the prey of a great spoil divided. The lame take a prey and the inhabitant shall not say I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. This is what the Lord's gonna be able to do, um, which he's so good at, forgiving people of their sins. Um, good stuff. Quickly, chapter 34, we're almost done for the night, but um, let's, let's cover this one. It says we're almost half, well, we're about halfway through Isaiah as we speak. It's a long book, 66 chapters. Um, verse one says, "'Come near, ye nations, to hear, "'and hearken, ye um, people. "'Let the earth hear, and all that, that is therein, "'the world and all things that come forth of it. "'For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, "'and his fury upon all their armies. "'He hath utterly destroyed them. "'He hath delivered them to the slaughter.'" So chapter 34, as we talked about a little bit on Sunday, is about the nations, God judging the nations. Verse three, their slain also shall be cast out. Their stink shall come upon out of their carcasses and the mountains shall be melted with their blood and all the host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll and all their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine, as a, as a falling fig from the fig tree. Um, man, we can get, talk about this uh, when the earth and everything. So when, do, when does the earth get totally destroyed? That's at the end of the millennial kingdom. And there's going to be a new heaven and new earth created. And so it's a whole new deal. 
Uh, but how's the earth gonna, and the cosmos, the universe gonna be sort of destroyed? Dissolved. And the word dissolved there is an interesting word. In fact, um, you know, um, it's always funny how science sort of chuckles at the Bible, but it shouldn't. Whenever the Bible deals with science, what's amazing about it is it's actually, its descriptions are amazing. You know, the earth is hung upon nothing. You know, that was written before we knew anything about what's going on with the earth in space. But the Bible has been accurate about this. But for you that are interested, I'm gonna throw you a bone here, you science brains. Um, the language of verse four, the earth shall be dissolved and the heavens rolled together with a scroll. Um, you know, um, those that study, you know, vector analysis or tensor calculus, they, they know that science is revealing that the idea of stretching out the cosmos or unflurling, rolling it out, is actually really perfect language in talking about the expanding of the universe. And, and the Bible actually gets this right. Isaiah gets it right. Um, you know, it, like in Colossians, it says this, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, for he is before all things and by him all things consist. The word consist there is an interesting word, literally held together. And man, science could deal with this, you know, about the, the idea of, um, you know, um, like things repel. And so, you know, when you have these like charges, you know, um, but the Lord is holding all these things together. What is the force? That's the question that holds the atom uh, together. I, I suggest to you it's God himself. And for the earth to be destroyed, what does God need to do? Let go. All things are held together by him, it says here and literally consist by his holding it together. All God has to do is let it go. And suddenly the cosmos is like a pink mist. It's just over. Um, and, and isn't it interesting? That's kind of the wording here. The heavens and the host of it shall be dissolved. Same kind of language. Um, it's not a hard thing for the Lord to destroy the earth. He just has to let go. It kind of reminds me when I went skydiving, we went in this little plane. And, uh, and before I you know, jumped out, he taught us you had to walk out and put your foot on the tire and then hold the, the strut that goes up to the wing and you're just hanging on the strut, flapping in the wind. And then the jump master would point to you and you, all you had to do is let go. Um, <laughs> I think that was a smart thing because if you're standing there having to jump, you have to kind of like get the guts to stand and jump, you know, but you're hanging there and all, you know, after a while you get tired, you're gonna let go at some point. Um, so, that, so when you just say, let go, you just go and you're gone. That's what the Lord's gonna do with the heavens and the earth. He's gonna allow it to be dissolved. Verse five, for my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. Now, Idumea is another name for the Edomites. Um, and uh, some say this is an idiom for world, the world, people of the world, um, not just the Edomites. Um, verse six, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood, is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. Um, uh, we'll talk more about this uh, Basra and what this means in Isaiah 63. We'll be getting there uh, shortly. Um, and the unicorns. Your margin says rhinoceros, so it's probably a poor translation saying unicorn. 
but the unicorn or the rhinoceros shall come down with them and the bullocks with the bulls and their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense for the controversy of Zion. So when Christ returns, he's gonna deal with the nations of the world that treated Israel badly. And they're gonna become places where rhinoceroses <laughs> and animals, and there's more animals that are gonna come. We'll read about them. Verse nine, the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch the dust thereof to brimstone, the land thereof becoming burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. So some of these regions, maybe you know Saudi Arabia and some of these oil rich areas were desert, it's, it describes their burning and they become in, in, uninhabitable. Um, that's, that's what's being talked about here. Verse 11, but the uh, cor, uh, cormorant, which is um, probably a pelican, interestingly enough, and the bittern shall possess it, the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch out upon the line of confusion, the stones of emptiness. They shall call the nobles thereof to the kingdom, but none shall be there. All her princes shall be nothing. Um, now, by the way, do you remember in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became without form and void. And um, there's an interesting teaching we've done on that, if you can go back to our Genesis 1-1 uh, study. And, but we learned something from Isaiah 34-11, how to interpret Genesis 1-1, and it has to do with the Hebrew language. Do you remember tohu vabohu? Um, not tofu, tohu vabohu. Um, which is literally the word becoming or to become. So it's an interesting, in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth and the earth became tohu vabohu without form and void. What happened between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2? Go get the teaching, uh, check it out. It's kind of interesting, but Isaiah helps us with this because it says that he will stretch uh, stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. The idea is to literally become desolate is the idea here. Verse 13, and the thorns shall come up in her palaces, nettles and brambles in the fortresses thereof, and it shall be a habitation for dragons and a court for owls. Um, The wild beasts of the desert shall uh, also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow, and the screech owl uh, also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. Um, there shall be a great owl make her nest and lay and hatch and gather under her shadow. There shall be vultures also gathered, everyone with her mate. Now, don't have time to go into this, but for you guys that want to go a little deeper, these animals that are listed here that dwell in these nations that God's going to crush and destroy, there's an evil demonic element to each of these animals. Um, and it's worth a study if you, if you want to dive deeper. Um, for example, the screech owl in verse 14 is the Hebrew word lilith, uh, which is um, demonic. There's, so there's like a, a sort of a demonic sort of um, uh, connotation to all these animals settling where the humans used to live. And it's going to be burning and fire and brimstone. Uh, some even kind of talk about this like hell. Uh, so it's kind of a scary scene, and that's what it's meant to be for those who reject God, who are not righteous. They're going to be judged. 
Verse 16, seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read. No one of these shall fail. Not one of these promises that we just read about will fail. None shall want her mate. None of these animals will be looking for a mate because they'll be living where no people are. For my mouth it hath commanded and his spirit it hath gathered them. The Lord says it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen and the spirit's gonna gather the animals just like he did for the ark. Only this time it's gonna be for this desolation. And verse 17, he hath cast the lot for them. His hand hath divided it unto them by line. They, uh, they shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell therein. The destruction of the nations is gonna be ugly and it's gonna be uh, laced with demonic activity, but the Lord is gonna subdue those people. And man, I wouldn't wanna be a part of that. This part of the Bible gets kind of scary when you read about stuff like that, but there's good news. You don't have to be a part of that. You can be a part of those that are saved. Uh, You're saved from death and hell and destruction when you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the grave, and if you accept that work of salvation for your sins, the Bible says you're on the right side. And when the rapture of the church happens, you'll be with the Lord and you'll be there forever, uh, for all eternity with the Lord. None of this will move you, none of this will shake you. So that's, that's what we're called to do is follow Christ. All of this stuff, the Old Testament, is to remind us to be on the right side of things. Hope you're a Christian, especially in these days. These aren't days to be messing around, playing you know, with made up religions that people sort of come up with. But I would go with the, the word of God that has withstood the test of time and it's absolute truth, uh, the scriptures. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And I pray that as we um, continue through Isaiah, that we'd have your heart, your mind, that we wouldn't be troubled by what's coming, but prepared, Lord, that our hearts would be ready as we walk with you, serve you. Um, Lord, I pray that everybody who's listening to this teaching tonight will have that assurance of salvation, knowing that they're saved by your grace through faith. If not, Lord, I pray that they would come to you, repent of their sins, be saved, and accept the work of the cross. So bless your people. Lord, may this study tonight bring good fruit into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.